The sponsor of our show today is CNE Wildlife. CNE Wildlife partnered up with North American Deer Talk. We're incredibly grateful for that. If you get a, a chance or an opportunity, say thank you to them. And the reason is really simple. They have 30 years of commitment to all natural probiotics. This commitment's really a passion for them. And they've established that through university research at Texas Tech. Whether that be their fawn paste, their top score product, their show choice, farm pack, all the various products they have, they really provide a service and a set of products that helps your herd thrive. Give Sadie a call over there at CNE and uh, order up some good stuff. We think you'll like it. We know we do. We've been uh, product users for almost 15 years now. Um, we feel it's the best around. So get you some CNE wildlife today. Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome back to another episode of North American Deer Talk. This is episode 64. We have uh, Big Bass and Giant Whitetail with Chris Messner. Methner, excuse me. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, buddy. I'm, I'm ecstatic to be on the show. No, I'm, I'm glad to have you here. I, uh, I'm, I'm glad I, I reached out and we got a chance to chat a little bit beforehand. And it's, uh, it's been something I want, I've been wanting to do for a while because I, I keep seeing you post things that like are outside of my wheelhouse aka fish and mm -hmm. i love seeing big fish so i want mm -hmm. to explore that with you today um if you would just uh give the listeners and the the folks watching there uh, a little bit of background on on yourself and um you know the blessed bayou uh company that you you have there okay. my name's chris Bettner and i own blessed bayou wildlife and fisheries uh consulting and I started, uh, I got a degree from Texas A&M University doing wildlife and fisheries uh, ecology. And at that time I worked on a ranch. As time went on, I grew and, and, and went to larger ranches, larger whitetail breeding operations and larger fishery operations. And eventually um, in 2008, I broke out on my own and started Blessed Bayou. And so since then we've been consistently trying to uh, improve Blessed Bayou, grow Blessed Bayou to the best of our abilities. And, and we focus uh, just about every aspect of freshwater fisheries management, whitetail deer management, whether it be uh, free range, ranch management, habitat work, uh, or whitetail breeding uh, facilities as well. And so we, we, uh, we also do quite a bit of work in waterfowl management. Uh, and we work across the southeast southeastern United States, and and uh, it's been a blessing. We really enjoy what we do. We have a wonderful team here. Um, I couldn't do it without the team that we have, and it's it's really been great, man. Good people are are good to have on board, oh, especially with common. You know, you get some common vision, and everybody. Yeah. We're generally, if you're in the deer business, we're all we're all blessed to be there because, like, yeah. working with deer for for me, I I say this to people, and sometimes they cringe. I'm like, I like working with animals better than I like working with people. And like, yeah, I keep yeah. my, I keep my circle pretty small, you know? So yeah. I, yeah, no, I, it's awesome. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's supposed to be fun, you know, and that's the beauty of, of what we do. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so I want to, I want to talk uh, deer a little later. I like to talk fish first. So I just want to kind of get right into it. Um, you guys are just outside of uh, Houston or uh, in that general area. Yeah. We're located. The office is located about 30 miles east of Houston and we're kind of between Houston and the Louisiana border and we're right on the coast um, we're right off of Trinity Bay and so that's where we home base out of that's where I grew up so when I broke out on my own I ended up moving back 
Uh, and this is an area that's, it's really a cool area. You have Trinity Bay, you know, saltwater fishing, the Gulf of Mexico. And then there's a large marsh system right here, uh, big wetlands, waterfowl uh, uh, sanctuary. And, and, and then you, you go into hardwood bottoms and then piney woods all within a stretch of really 15 miles. And so you can get in a boat and hit every one of those ecosystems in one trip. And it's a, it's a really cool ecological uh, area, you know, with all the different transition zones. And so we, uh, so, it, you know, I have a lot of passion for this area and moved back, uh, but we work all over the Southeastern United States, all across Texas and then, you know, Louisiana and, and all the way over to Florida. Um, so I don't, I'm not trying to get out over my skis, but is, is this like a, just like a, do you think it's a really good area to focus on fisheries? Like, is it a good area to raise trophy bass? Right. That's my question. Yeah, it is. Um, really a lot of, of the entire Eastern portion of Texas is a great area, uh, to grow trophy bass, you know, is the, the trick is, so you have a lot of fertile water, um, which, that's the beginning of the food chain, you know, and it, and it creates a, a fertile fishery. Uh, there are some water quality issues in East Texas, but they're easily uh, fixed, you know, and uh, when you get into the Western portion of the state, you have a, a ton of hard water or a lot of lime in the water. And it's a lot of clear water. Uh, and as far as trophy largemouth production, clear water, the, the more clear the water, the tougher it is to grow larger fish. Uh, and it's, there's several reasons for that, but, uh, but it just is that way. And so it's a more, it's a whole different management scheme when you get West, but this Eastern portion and the Southeastern portion are great areas to, to grow trophy bass. So like I'm up here in, in Pennsylvania and, um, I grew up trout fishing. That's, we got right. lots of cold, you know, cold mountain spring water and we got nice, we got really nice trout fishing here. Mm -hmm. Um, there are ponds, right? And, and, you know, they're obviously, they're obviously stocked uh, and the largemouths seem to do good, but like, I never seen a bass bigger than about six pounds up here. Um, no. Is this, is this much like, I, I suspect it's much like the deer business, which is what I know, genetics, feed environment, that kind of thing. Can you touch mm -hmm. on maybe some of the differences between the, where I am, the Eastern Northeastern uh, largemouth and, um, you know, the difference in, in where you are in Texas. Right. So you guys, you know, your water temperatures stay much cooler than we are down here. And so majority strains of largemouth bass grow best at from really 72 to about 82 degree water temperature. And so for you guys, you have like a really short growing season. Yeah. Uh, and so they, but the difference is so, and I'll touch on this, but so you have a really short growing season due to water temperatures. Um, we're down here, we have a really long season and, and really, especially when you get over to Florida and you look at the Florida strain bass, they have a, they basically, they have a year round growing season, uh, where the Northern fish have that short, they have those short periods really two times a year to, to put on as much weight as they possibly can. And so with that, it's, it's much more difficult to grow larger fish in those water temperatures and those short growing seasons, but the plus of those fish, those northern fish, are they're more aggressive. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah, and so that that's why they're you know they're they're all different types of crosses to try to take advantage of both. You know, your Florida fish are not as as aggressive. They're mm. more methodical on how they feed, 
and they take their time and they position and where a northern fish you can put them in our vats and man you throw a bluegill in there it's like it's war you know yeah. <laughs> and so it, it's both have their pluses but uh but to grow the larger trophy fish you know it's uh, a lot of it has to do with with the uh water temperatures and genetics as well like california you know they hold uh the the united states record and it's it's similar water it's real clear water uh which is unfertile you know uh and in most schemes it's not great for a fishery but in in this specific scheme in, in california uh the bass population is not real high but they have rainbow trout to feed on and rainbow trout uh, as far as conversion rates go, as as far as the amount of forage eaten to the, the amount of weight gained of weight gained on a bass, uh, it's they're extremely high. They're probably the top forage fish, and so they have rainbow trout down there, a low bass population, and they introduced Florida genetics over there years ago. And mm. and once they did that, man, they were able to grow some you know seventeen pound plus fish. That's a big fish. Insane, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's really cool. Um, so. Uh, we, again, I, I didn't want to get out over my skis, but I, I had to know. Um, so I'd like to maybe just uh, take a step back and and look at the the kind of less Bayou uh, model uh, from from the I guess from the guise of uh, ranch management and land improvement and those kinds of things. Um, I, I know that that as I kind of continue down my own journey of of what land conservation is and and what it means to me i come across guys like yourself that i i just find really interesting in these different uh aspects of of what that is so I, i'd like you to just maybe give an overview of like kind of what that means to you and how you use uh your business i.e the fish uh end of things to add value to these properties and 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 you know promote not putting a you know, concrete parking lot in a shopping mall somewhere. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, with urban sprawl, um, especially down here where we are, close to Houston and and, and a lot of Texas is developing. Um, I'm with you. I have the same thought process that conservation is, is key and uh, involvement in the outdoors with the youth, is, especially, uh, is, is so important. And uh, and dedicating acreage to wildlife management. You know, that's that's a big deal. And, and there's, I feel like, I, I commend you on what you're doing publicly, you know, especially with the deer breeding in, because there's so many people that, um, it, this is my opinion, but there's so many people that just don't understand really what deer breeding is about. And they dang sure don't understand the conservation end of it. Um, and, and I think that it gets overlooked a lot as just a, you know, prize trophy industry and there's so much more to it and that sounds like the same thing that you love is what I love it's creating animals that improve property values improve genetics on properties for for generations and uh in reality in the state of Texas you know white-tailed deer are absolutely one of the most valuable uh resources that there are that there is in the state and so uh it, our job is white-tailed deer breeders you know, I feel like it's, uh, and this, like I said, this, this is my personal opinion, but, uh, you know, we need to keep that in mind. And when we're, we're breeding and selecting genetics and trying to create an animal that uh, truly is a better option for a landowner, 
including longevity, disease resistance, and you know, obviously antler traits and 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 all the other things that we brief for. That's just unbelievably important, in my opinion. And I, like I said, I commend you for for having the uh, taking the time to to send this public and and putting this much effort into it. That's so important, in my opinion. Yeah, thank thank you. I appreciate that. I um I I never thought about this stuff when I was younger, right? And yeah, you know, as you kind of time changes a lot of things and and you you know i've been i've been doing this a long time and you know as my as i'm immersed in it and i've i I continue to try to think critically of things and then like again as you get older you start thinking about legacy whether it be your own or whether it be an industry um i i can like this is all, you know, for me, like, this is all I do. All I do is deer and, and, um, you know, my, my livelihood and my income for, you know, 20, over 20 years depends on this. So like, if, if I can publicly advocate for other people, that's awesome. And like, you know, if I can even like, and there's, I'm not saying everybody needs to think like I think, I mean, I think having good conversation and and debate, especially debate with differing opinions is good because it builds a a more robust argument for all of us to have. Right. Like that's, that's evident. Um, I, I just, uh, I hope that, you know, I can drag some people along on the ride with me and say, look, like we, we can articulate what we do better. There's nuance in all these conversations and we can make a case to the public um, because frankly, I, I, and, and I'm not speaking for anybody else, but for me personally, like I watch what, um, government does, whether that be elected people, more specifically non-elected folks and, and, um, they just don't get it, you know? So mm-hmm. like, we have a constant fight here in Pennsylvania with our wildlife department and it's just a, it's a different ideology and, and I respect their opinion on it right i make my case and they make theirs the problem that i find is that you know like we we i think we make really good arguments and and typically they're they're ignored um and and it's hard for me it's hard for me not to see why there's not a lot of value in what we do because like when i go down the list of really i think big things. Right. And you can throw out big words like conservation, um, you know, management, legacy, habitat improvement. I mean, the list is long. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, we check all the boxes, Mm -hmm. we just do it a different way. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I look at like maybe the wildlife conservation model, the North American conservation model. And, you know, certainly it's a success, right. It's a success for North America and what they, what they've done. You know, if you look at, you know, 19 turn of the 1900s, like we, as a, as a country, like we wrecked the wildlife here and and we rebuilt it. Right. Every day guys like yourself are, are rebuilding that brick by brick, but we're not doing it through the government. And I love that. I love that. But then there's this, this place where we run against maybe like this, um, maybe like European kind of old European aristocrat model where we have private lands where, you know, people manage them intensely and it's not a, so much a public resource anymore, but it is, it's open to the public, but there's a cost associated with it. So does it come from the private individual or does it come from the government? I, no. I prefer private 
all day long for me. Yeah. And yeah. it doesn't mean that like, I don't enjoy going out West and, you know, going to hunt. I, I'm glad my dollars go to that, but yeah. we're starting to see a divide, right? Yeah. Wildlife agencies that are mandated to maintain habitats for hunting and wildlife are putting in bike trails, right? Yeah. Putting in ATV trails. They're, they're, you know, they're, concerned about bird watching stations and what yeah. and i get it like i understand that we want to have that public appeal but like our dollars especially like Pittman robinson that stuff goes it's supposed to go direct to the hunting yeah. um yeah. curious yeah. your your maybe additional thoughts on on that kind of kind of bigger picture topic yeah i think um i agree with you on, on all of that honestly um i think that as far as uh properties and and people dedicating their acreage to wildlife management a lot of you know at least in the state of texas you know it's 97 percent privately owned and so it's uh, there's a tremendous amount of private property uh and, and, it, and most people don't want to hear this on the wildlife end of things but no matter what it comes down to making money uh and it doesn't have to it may not necessarily be a full-blown business model but in most cases ranches in the state of texas they're at least trying to get enough return to pay the taxes or or there's going to be money in the in the uh in the equation one way or another mm -hmm. and i feel like uh for the the conservation the preservation of of acres dedicated to wildlife management you know there there is there has to be a business model there uh for the majority other than the ultra wealthy that they can, they have the ability to go out and buy a hundred thousand acres and, sure. and do whatever they want with it. But that's, that's just a small portion of the state, you know? And so uh, things like the whitetail breeding, uh, I, I don't know of a, a, a more effective management tool for, for those style private own, uh, private landowners. And I don't know of a more valuable management tool available. Uh, and, and it's our job to, raise the right animals and truly be improving the genetics you know increasing genetic diversity and, and like i said have disease resistant animals and and that's my opinion you know and and so um just to add on to what you said that's uh, those are kind of my thoughts it's a lot of people don't want to look at it through a financial standpoint it's almost as far as when you're discussing this with state agencies or whoever you know wildlife management is almost looked at as uh you know a noble uh, act and but in reality money does play a role in it you know yeah. and, and that's just the way it is um so <laughs> i got i got off topic i apologize um back, <laughs> back to the back to the fish so um bass is your primary species that's your that's your love right um <laughs> you guys do other stuff but bass is the bass is the one um <laughs> so like folks that like walk us through, you know, somebody's developing a, a, a whitetail property and they, they want to have a, you need water, right? So they want to have a, yeah. you know, a pond or a lake, like what kinds of, what kinds of things do you kind of specialize in uh, for them? Give us the top to bottom rundown. Mm -hmm. We try to, uh, we try to cover just about every aspect of freshwater fisheries management. And um, as you said, most of these these ranches that we deal with on the whitetail end, fisheries rolls right into the game plan of what's going on there, and especially in commercial hunting properties. Mm. You know, there's guys that uh, 
they'll call and say, you know, we can't get them off the lake to get in the deer stands. They want to keep fishing, you know. And so it's it's just a great alternate uh, fun activity that for customers that come in, and and it uh, I feel like it brings tremendous value to a property, especially when you get into the upper end management of largemouth bass management. And so uh, largemouth bass, at least in the south, that's the most sought after freshwater species, and uh, and that's kind of we do just about every aspect and from the little bitty ponds to several hundred acre lakes. Uh, but we, I feel like, you know, we somewhat special in specialize in trophy largemouth bass management. And, and so with that comes from every detail from beginning your lake, the design of the lake, having the proper depths, the proper elevation changes, uh, in the contour, uh, travel corridors. It's, that's the other thing that you would appreciate probably it, fisheries management directly correlates with wildlife management. You know, it's uh, a lot of things that you use, you use on both sides of the, of the road there, you know, and so it's really cool, but regardless travel corridors, habitat cover, um, all of those things need to be thought out very well before you start digging. Uh, and once you do, you know, water quality, uh, is a huge aspect of what we do as far as trophy bass management goes. Um, and then your stocking rates, we go through and, and we do stock just about every species, but there's certain uh, certain stocking rates for certain management schemes. And, and so uh, that's, that's another important aspect of, of developing a lake or a pond on your property. Uh, and then beyond that, we manage, uh, you know, plankton blooms, which that's a big, uh, a big factor in the eastern part of the state where you can kick off a plankton bloom. It's the beginning of the of the food chain, and I know you you said you worked at a trout farm, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so, uh, what you guys y'all don't deal with much plankton up there, but green water down here is a big nope. deal. No plankton. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, down here, it's uh, we it's the beginning of the food chain, and and so it uh, and then secondly, it cuts down on on visibility. Uh, for your bass and like i was saying earlier clear water is one of the toughest scenarios to grow big fish in. uh fish do a lot better when the the largemouth bass growth rates in most cases do better and less visibility and so we manage visibility with plankton uh and because it is the beginning of the food chain so it also mm -hmm. makes the the lake or pond more productive and then um on this piece of property you know we have a piece of property we're developing now putting in a hatchery we're doing uh we're taking what we know from fisheries and from the deer breeding and the genetics, and we're implementing that into a bass breeding program on this property to try to produce uh, bass is the same way as the deer breeding program. Uh, superior fish that have better growth rates, uh, longevity, all those things, disease resistance, and implement those into our customers' lakes. And, uh, and so genetics play a, a big, big, part of the role in developing a trophy bass fishery or any bass fishery. So I, I want to dig into this because I'm fascinated. Like I look at, I look at, um, you know, like a, a deer facility and it's pretty easy to see a, a big buck out there. Right. Like you right. just look. Yeah. How do you find those big fish out? Like, tell me the setup. Like, is there, I, I mean, from a trout standpoint, concrete raceways, you got sorting boxes. You can take your average weights. You can, it's easy to kind of sort the bigger fish out generally. Um, right. How do you do that with a 
How do you do that with bass? So on large, so in our scenario, we have uh, brood ponds, and they're about three quarters of an acre each. Um, and we will we will pick uh, the best females that we can that we can find out of certain strains of bass uh, that we know that have have done very well for us genetically. Um, and we will so we'll have basically females dedicated to each brood pond and then we'll select a handful of males to go into each brood pond with that female and all of that will be selected on trait characteristics and, and lines of fish mm. it'll be are they tagged know, uh no no they won't be tagged yeah okay uh now we will dna them yeah so so you dna them i was yeah. gonna say like how do you get like do you catch them out of there do you net them do, do, how does Same that work yeah so we'll Same sand them in those three quarter acre ponds uh once the breeding process is taking place you know, we'll, there's a certain time point where um, it's time to pull the fish, grade them, and, and start growing them. Uh, and so, so we'll So when them. you, so like, <laughs> I love this. So you got <laughs> DNA, you got DNA bass. You yeah. have, you're, you're, you're selecting, obviously record keeping is incredibly important. Yep. Um, you're, you're speaking, uh, you're picking specific fish for the characteristics that you desire um, there's obviously calling, um, how do you like, what do you look for? I, and I'm not, I am not up on my bass. I've caught some bass. I don't know anything about bass. So like, what do you look no. for in a fish? Like physically, like, what are you looking at? Yeah. So part of it is what percentage Florida they have in them. Um, and then as far as physical characteristics, uh, we're looking for total length, girth, and then even how the fish is, um, the makeup of the fish's body and so where it breaks over past the anal fin uh and, and things like that and so and then fish that grow really well and so um like in your reproduction your younger fish that, that come out of these breedings there'll be a certain percentage that you call we call them jumpers they become cannibalistic and they start eating the other fish but they're that's the animals that are have the fastest growth growth rates you know they're the more aggressive fish mm -hmm. uh, and as long as they're all born at the same time you know or around the same time now you can have fish that if people put several females into a brood pond you'll you'll have different spawning dates and different size fish and that can be a, a false sense of a true jumper uh but but we'll take uh as far as the reproduction goes we'll take those fish what we feel are the most aggressive with the fastest growth rates out of that breeding and bring them continue them into our breeding our brood program uh and grow them up and, and start working on breeding those as well now we're at the very beginning stages you know we haven't even dna to bass yet um it's that's the that's the goal is to start setting this up uh dna wise and, and start gotcha you know start that part that pedigree progress basically um so how does like is there a bass dna registry like get I, yeah. I don't, I don't even, I don't even yeah. know where to go with this. Cause this is, this is wild to me. So like yeah, so you we'll can look at to... signatures or markers and then compare them to others and say, Heritage. okay, yeah. these, these have similar lineage. Yep. Do you do, yeah. can you practice line breeding? Can you like, is all that stuff possible? Yeah. And so like there are certain lines, um, like for example, in Texas, there's Camelot Bell, Mike Frazier has, he has probably, it's absolutely one of the best bass fisheries in the nation. And this fish, this line of fish that he has, now it's in a 35-acre lake, 
but or now he has a few lakes that size but they were introduced from florida like 33 years ago and so um he has a very deep bred or what i feel would be a very tight bred group of fish mm. that are still producing phenomenal you know and so there's absolutely there's natural line breeding going on there now as far as what we breed for i i anticipate Using, I anticipate developing lines, staying true to those lines and crossing. And so part of the, the uh, strategy will be to, to line breed. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like part of the strategy will be to start crossing some of these lines that I'm developing and, and try to, to better them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's like that, you would in a, a whitetail breed. So yeah, that, that makes yeah. perfect sense. Um, so fish selection is obviously really important to start with. Like you right. have to have superior, superior, uh, stock to start with. And hopefully yep. you made the right decisions in your assessment of that fish. Um, yep. do you, do you think that your, you know, your, your background with, you know, from school and some of those things that you've, you've just the experience that you've gained a lot along the way kind of help you along that process. Cause like I couldn't, you couldn't, if somebody said, I'll give you a million dollars to pick out the best bass, I, I fail. Like I'm no. going home broke. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So like, yeah. what does that, what does that look like for you? Do you think? Yeah. yeah. I think that, you know, no longer the deer breeding thing, you know, as far as what we've learned over the years in genetics, um, I, I feel like that will help us tremendously on the, I feel like that's as far as the other guys that are breeding fish, none of them are deer breeders, you know, or, or some that's of them probably cool. have a genetics background, but sure. Um, it's a little different, at least in the state of Texas. And so I feel like that gives us a small advantage mm. of what we know genetically on from that species. And so, um, I think that, uh, I think that will help us tremendously. I think that, uh, like you said, fish selection and, and some of the stuff that, you know, we electrofish a tremendous amount during the spring and fall. What is that? Yeah, that's how we serve ponds and lakes. And so we have a boat that has a boom with metal leads that, uh, go into the water and runs off a generator and a, a box that allows us to control the amperage and the voltage uh, and the frequency and so of the shock and so it's it shocks the fish it stuns them we net them and it's how we assess populations and bodies of water uh, and from once we know what's in there and what's going on then we can make management decisions and so um, and, and so with that we look at a tremendous number of bass you know every year and, and kind of have our own mindset of what makes a, a really good fish. That's, that's something that, you know, there's a lot in the bass world. Uh, overpopulation is a, a huge issue with largemouth bass. They mm. tend to overpopulate naturally and they eat themselves out of house and home. And you end up with a, a lot of fish that are 12 inches long or 14 inches long. And there's no food source to grow them larger than that. They may be an older fish. Well, culling fish, you know, there's a, there's a lot of just kind of simple standards set in fisheries management where you need to pull, they'll say you need to pull every fish 16 inches and under out or 14 inches and under out, depending on how the lake or pond sits. Uh, and we try, we try to go in and selectively cull. Like we, there, there's a, a, um, an equation that gives you what they call a relative weight. And so if a, a bass is a certain length and he's the way this much and it's hundred percent healthy, and we work off of uh, little iPads, basically, that tell us that relative weight immediately as we're logging our data on the boat. And we try to selectively cull 
uh, fish that are not produced, that are not growing and, gotcha. or, you know, older fish, or we don't want to just be, just have a blanket culling system of 15 inches and under, because there might be a wonderfully built 12 inch female bass that needs to recruit and move and, and add to the population, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we, we try to implement those things in, into our management schemes. And it's, it's one of the things that, you know, just like anybody, we're trying to be the best. And right. it's, it's one of those things we implement to try to make that goal happen. You know, um, I want to jump off the uh, fish themselves and jump back to one of the topics we started with, and that's water quality, because everything starts with the water. Um, sure. you, you know, you said clear water, clear water is bad for growing trophy fish. Um, how do you how do you do these assessments on your on your water and water quality and kind of what you know so i get i know everything's individual you know a one acre pond's not a one acre pond i, I got that but like what what are is there certain things that you look for like how do you do you just know from your experience that this type of water will be good or and then how yeah, do you make those time, improvements yeah you can look at like um sometimes plankton growth is a a indicator of kind of where the water quality sits and we use a it's called a secchi disc and it's nothing more than a a plastic disc that has 50% of it's black, 50% of it's white, and you drop it in the water and, and it judges visibility through the water. Uh, and, and so beyond that, we pull samples and we send them to a lab and it tells us pH and alkalinity and hardness, um, conductivity, salinity, iron levels, all these different parameters. Uh, it, it lets us know exactly where they're at. And then we pull uh, we have a meter that tells us a lot also. And so we'll pull like dissolved oxygen content, things like that we can do on site. But mm -hmm. ultimately we're generally, when we're really digging into water quality, we're looking at that uh, water quality report developed from the lab where we send the, the water to. Gotcha. That gives so, you this really in-depth breakdown. That's you right. can make those adjustments then. Um, right. Do you ever get a, do you ever get a call and like you go out to a new place and you look at it, you're like, this looks pretty nice. And then you get out on the water and you're just like, this is a gem. Like, yeah. where, like where you've been hiding. Yeah. And, yeah. and so when you do that, cause it sounds like you have, yeah. do you ever like, can you supplement breeding programs like that? Can you find new stock? Like, is that how it kind of works? I've never. Um, so, yeah. So, First off, the, the answer to your question would be, yeah, there are times, man, you'll just go to a body of water and it's, it's just produced. And it, yeah. you, it, there can be another body of water 100 yards from it that won't produce like yeah. that, no matter what you do. Yeah. You know, <laughs> usually it has to do with, like in East Texas, a lot of times it has to do with tannin water, which is, uh, you might, uh, tannin is just a, a byproduct from decomposition of biomaterial mm -hmm. and it turns, it stains the water, kind of a tea color. And uh, a lot of people don't like it, but if you, in, in those situations, usually the water is fairly acidic and it has low alkalinity, which just means when the alkalinity is low, it just, it does not have the ability to buffer pH changes. And so with uh, photosynthesis and things throughout the day, pH, is, pH can rise or lower and, and any change stresses fish. But if you, in those waters where you have tannin, uh, if you fix your alkalinity issue, a lot of times they're those gems that man you'll because mm. they never they never clear up which goes back to that clear water and, and i'm not saying you can't produce 
huge bass in clear water. Obviously, like California, you can. Yeah. Uh, just in really the eastern part of Texas where that really, you know, clear water is, is a, a main issue. So anyways, uh, the tannin color water just seems to, it, it holds really good fish a lot of times. Interesting. It, yeah, it's very inter interesting. And I never, I was never taught that until we, you know, I just started noticing it. And, and you really, there's several things like that, as you well know, you pick up. It's yeah. field experience, I guess, is what yep. it'd be labeled as, you know. That's neat. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of, I could, I could talk fish for a while. Cause I, I have lots of questions cause I, I don't know, yeah. but I, I want to get to some, some deer talk with you. Um, mm -hmm. how, um, like, how do you look? I mean, you had mentioned before, like you feel whitetail deer is, is probably the greatest improvement that someone can make to a, a piece of property to conserve it and, and add value to it. And when you add value to something, you make it you know, more rare, more valuable, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, so when you, when you look at, I guess we'll start maybe with your, your consulting and, and some of the things you do there for others, and then we can kind of get into more of your, your personal breeding program and your thoughts around that. Um, mm -hmm. when you, when you go and you kind of do consulting, how do you like, how do you kind of start that process? Do you just, do people have goals in mind that they tell you and you try to work towards what they, what they want? And like, how far do you push up against like somebody being like, well, I want this. And you're like, if you do that, it's going to be bad. Right. Like, so right. Walk, us, yeah. walk us through that a little bit. Yeah. I, that's a, so generally the first step is to, um, to establish goals if they don't have any. And once they establish those goals, then like you said, I mean, you have to manage expectations because basically I'm on the, once we start the process, I'm on the hook for the production. You know, it, it has to be there and, or I failed at my job. And so um, there are scenarios where, you know, I may push back fairly hard just to, because I want the, the landowner to have a reality. You know, I want the goals to be a, a reality and I want them to be realistic, you know, and, and achievable. And so, but regardless, we go in and generally we'll establish goals and then we analyze the piece of property and, and then we start designing habitat improvement, travel corridors, nutritional uh, strategies, and, and all those things that go in a genetic and supplementation in most cases mm -hmm. uh, on these properties. And so uh, what I feel like is, as we talked about, other than the ultra wealthy, these guys, without whitetail breed, without being able to bring in genetics, it is it would be very difficult to um to convince landowners to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on habitat improvement if the genetics are not there and and, and what a lot of people may not realize and at least in the state of texas you know the genetics the, the native genetics in, in many areas have been topped out for years you know and and it's just the natural <laughs> uh habits of hunters you know mm -hmm. harvesting you know like for example in east texas average age is a year and a half you know and or in some areas two and a half but they're shooting in most cases your larger two and a half year old animals and and so without being able to uh bring in the genetic component to the equation i feel like it would be very difficult to uh i, I feel like these landowners would not uh would not commit as much time and effort to habitat improvements on these properties which in turn help multiple species you know and, and 
uh, I, I think that with with being able to add the breeding animals to the properties, with being able to utilize genetics, improve genetics from breeding facilities, these properties, uh, the value, first off, goes up. Um, and it, it dedicates more land, wildlife management, you know, which is ultimately, that should be the, in my mind, should be the goal of any wildlife entity or, or biologist or enthusiast, you know, that's a plus. And so uh, with the breeding, that the breeding end plays, what I'm trying to say is the breeding end plays such an important role in that supplying genetics. And like we talked, I feel that it's the most, uh, most effective management tool available to us. Uh, so what, I, I guess if we, I'm curious your opinion, um, cause I'm not, I mean, I, I've kind of followed, you know, hunting in Texas for, I'm, I'm still, a, <laughs> I'm knocking on what I'm still a relatively young man. I hope I stay that way uh, right. for, for a while, but like, you know, I, I wasn't around to watch the kind of boom of trophy management in the late seventies and early eighties. That that's, that's before my time. Right. Um, and I, I seen the, um, for lack of a better term, kind of uh, commercial expansion of of that type of management. And what is it, you know, we have so much diversity across Texas, you know, like East Texas and West Texas are not the same. They are different mm -hmm. countries, right? It's different habitats. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you, when you kind of look at um, how these supplementations and, and conservation projects uh, happen, is there, do you find like diversity in those types of operations with different goals? And then I guess as a, a, a second point to that, like if you look at those those native populations and such, like is is there certain areas of the state that have maybe uh, better genetics that you could establish, um, you know, a, a, a habitat or a high fenced area with the native genetics over the course of a longer time like give us the kind of rundown of what that looks like yeah you know um there are within texas you know there are several eco regions that all they have they have tremendous amount of contrast or differences uh as you pointed to you know and so piney woods would be the eastern portion you know and that's piney woods and post oak savannah is kind of in central texas and so mm. uh we as far as Blessed Bayou goes and whitetail management, habitat management goes, that's kind of where we specialize in. And, and, and really even south of there, they have Live Oak Prairie is what the region is called. And so all of that, all of those regions, we uh, we do a lot of work in because we'd have the most, we have most experience in those regions versus uh, South Texas or West Texas, but, but they do require different management schemes um, and, and especially in the nutrition department you know it in east texas you can get away with liming soil preparing it and and producing a tremendous amount of nutrition off of food plots mm. you know correctly uh planted food plots and mm -hmm. so the further west you get the the and south uh, that becomes much more difficult you know and, and so there there are a lot of different a lot of differences in, in how we manage those properties uh but but they're definitely uh it's all interesting because generally the goals are somewhat similar for the landowner, you know, and as far as utilizing native genetics, we do as well. Um, there are regions and there's even regions 
Uh, South Texas is known for trophy whitetail deer. You know, that's what they're known for. Uh, and back in the, you know, in the early 1900s, East Texas was just about decimated. The whitetail population was, and it was poached out. There were running dogs and, and just about uh, extinct whitetail deer from the Eastern right. region of the state, you know? And so they, at those times, the state went in and they started translocating deer into East Texas and these areas that had really, really low populations. And so uh, you've got some genetic diversity there and, and there are some wonderful genetics like where I live, for example, uh, in these bottom lands, they're extremely fertile. And, you know, we'll see native white-tailed deer that are 140 inches, 150 inches and up to 170. And every now and then you'll get to 190. And that's a, uh, for this region, that's a gigantic native white anywhere it doesn't matter if it's yeah yeah great from minnesota yeah so as far as your question whether or not we utilize are there scenarios where we utilize native genetics there definitely are but generally that depends on um the goal of the landowner i see you know and so do you find anybody like resistant to the idea of like bringing in other genetics or some people like nope Native habitat, native habitat only, and 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 native deer. Yeah, there are a few, uh, but not as many as I would think. You know, yeah. personally, uh, you see a lot of that, uh, especially on the deer breeding and things. You know, we catch a lot of flack uh, from, in my opinion, from some of those you know, naturalists or however they're labeled. But uh, which I, I feel like you and myself are probably naturalists, but not yeah. necessarily to the point of of breeding, but, you know, I mean, of anti-breeding, but as far as conservation goes, you know, mm -hmm. and so, um, I, you do have some folks that, that want to stick with native genetics and, and, or want to do a partial, uh, introduction of genetics, you know, and, and sometimes I feel like that's a, not a bad scenario because a lot of those animals that are native to that area, they are resistant, you know, they're, you, they have, uh, evolved to withstand what's in that region, you know, yeah. and so, I don't, there are scenarios where I think that's a great thing and, and supplementing those genetics, you know? Yeah. I, I, I like that idea of, you know, having a, call it a, a native deer population and yeah. you have the, you have animals that have established themselves in an environment for extended periods of time. Uh, and you're, you're, you're basically doing what we we do on a line bred cross with some hybrid vigor, right? You're, you're adding new genetics and it's like, all of a sudden there's that spark. Yeah, um, it didn't take much new blood, just a little yeah. bit, you know, you sprinkle it on there and, and bam. Yeah. So I like that. I think that's, yeah. I think that's a great, a great way to look at things. And I suspect sure. it's a little bit more cost effective to use animals that are there and, and supplement in a smaller way. Yeah, so, absolutely. absolutely. Um, I want to dig into, uh, I want to dig into the breeder market a little bit. Um, if we can and, and uh, shift off of of the um, so much the the, co the conservation aspect and 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 management aspect, um, you know, as we of course I'm gonna I'm gonna say some three letter words that I <laughs> <laughs> I always talk about um, right. when you when you look at um, uh, how CWD has kind of. Uh, started to establish itself in, in different areas of the country, reactions from um, those in agriculture and uh, also on the, the wildlife side. Um, 
curious, maybe some opening thoughts on on what you're seeing, maybe in the state of Texas, that uh, maybe give you pause or concern, um, and then we'll maybe talk some solutions and and some of your thoughts there. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, CWD, you know, it's obviously a real disease and it has a real threat. Um, I don't, you know, I, I believe that wholeheartedly. I believe um, that I feel like the disease has spread, or we know it has spread. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that the spread is inevitable, um, especially with, you know, Louisiana hit a positive this year, free ranging. Alabama hit a positive this year, free ranging. You know, and it's, to me, that just says, you know what, it, it, it's moving. It, the, the spread is inevitable. Um, so no matter where you sit on CWD, it's there and it's probably coming, you know, at higher, at higher exposure rates mm-hmm. uh, in the future. And I feel like, um, I feel like most efforts in my mind should be spent on a solution to CWD. And, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, the, the disease itself, like you said, it's a threat. Um, I think that um, the regulations that come with it on the breeding end of things are really, really tough. And, and I don't know uh, about Pennsylvania, uh, but in Texas, you know, it's uh, it's increasingly becoming uh, tougher to to manage a whitetail breeding facility and, and stay in business and and. Uh, and deal with regulations and so uh, that's kind of my opening stance to you know yeah. it's, it's basically it's here we need to figure out a solution and um and work together with all entities to, yeah. to figure out a solution yeah i always i always like the line you know it's not a it's not a, a deer farm or deer ranch disease it's a deer disease right and if you if you say um you know we have as much a vested interest as as anyone um, yeah. I don't, I don't know anybody that has a, a, a deer farm or a deer ranch. That's not a hunter. I, I don't know one. That's right. um, yeah, th- yeah. There's probably someone out there that maybe just doesn't hunt and they like to fish or whatever. And that's, that's fine. But like everybody I know has like big time vested interest in, in fixing this. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, like for us, we, Texas and Pennsylvania found CWD in 2012 or started off in the same year. Um, Obviously, our you know four four Pennsylvanias can fit into the state of Texas. You guys got a lot more landmass. Um, we're farther down our our journey into the the chronic waste disease quote unquote management uh, strategies, just because it's it's expanding across our landscape in a in a much uh, quicker way. And you know, I, I I have I have sympathy for for the the wildlife folks and the fact that like they really don't have a ton of tools today to deal with this disease. Right. Mm-hmm. So they're, you know, that we, we've heard like kind of uh, targeted removal, um, you know, d- like they're, they've, they've kind of tabled that up here and they're just onto depopulation or, or reduction of animal numbers through hunter harvest or whatever term Not they want to come up with, but like, yeah. like killing animals is, is, is what they got. Yeah. And that's yeah. simply to lessen the prion load on the environment. Yeah. Um, as you as you kind of look at this big picture, and I'm not saying anything you don't know, um, you mentioned a solution. What What do you think 
um, in your eyes, you know, poses kind of the, the, the best place for us to be um, just from a, a, a national deer standpoint with whitetail deer and obviously uh, mule deer and, and elk are going to benefit from the actions of whitetail. Um, mm. where, where, where does that kind of put us? Yeah, I think that, you know, a long-term solution would be natural selection. Obviously, it would take years and years and years um, uh, to create probably an effective natural selection scenario. Um, but uh, the only solution that I know of, or that in my mind that makes sense, and I would love to hear your, um, your thoughts on this, uh, but regardless, uh, would be genetic resistance and, uh, and being able to breed in with genetic resistance. Um, to me, that's the only solution that makes sense to me uh, to CWD. And I feel like, you know, the breeders, we get labeled pretty harshly about spreading the disease and, um, and, and having the disease. And, and in all reality, I was talking to Kevin Davis yesterday with, with uh, TDA, you know, the executive director, and, and he made a really good point. He said that, you know, if you took away all deer breeders right now, would you still have CWD and would CWD still spread? And, and absolutely. Yep. And, and for example, in the state of Texas, you know, I don't have 2021's data, but in 2020, we moved a little over 23,000 animals and they went on to high fence properties only right um as far as release site animals mm -hmm. and uh there were over eight hundred thousand animals harvested that year and every carcass gets moved and and we don't know if it can show up spontaneously i, I have a, i feel like it's a very sure. good possibility it does yep. you know and so there's so many avenues of this stuff moving um I feel like the deer breeders do get a bad rap for it, but in reality, we're just a very small portion of how this disease can, can be transported or move or spread. And I feel like, um, at least in Texas, you know, we, we lead the state in monitoring for CWD in an exponential fashion. You know, it, uh, in, in a one year's time, since they put the emergency rules on us on our last cases of CWD uh, back in June, of 2021, uh, there's been 45,000 anti-mortem tests, 13, over $13 million spent from the deer breeders. To, and so now we have to test every animal that's released. And so we're absolutely, I, I don't think the, this, this is another reason why I commend you for doing this stuff. I don't think the, I think if the public understood how proactive we are to stopping the disease or preventing the disease from spreading or developing in our farms uh, i think they would have a whole different outlook on on deer breeders you know the antis on deer breeders right yeah that's uh that's interesting the um the um, <laughs> i didn't know the testing data was the way it was and when you put a, a monetary premium on that it's absolutely staggering um yeah. the you can call it whatever you want. If I was a politician, I would say the the amount of investment that was made into this um is it is it really necessary to have you know that amount of testing uh happening? No, right? And I I, I can I, I make a case that um a a veterinarian made to me from a wildlife department and he said because I, I commented on our testing that, that we do and, you know, as part of the USDA herd certification program, which 
Um, you need to be under, it's the highest level of CWD surveillance. You have to test hundred percent of all the animals that die. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I said, okay, we do that. And then I, I look at the data and obviously, again, we come back to wildlife and, and myself having sympathy for their, their, um, their management efforts. Cause it's, it's incredibly hard. Right. Yeah, um, but they don't test like yeah. on a statistical basis, they test almost nothing. That's right. Um, and, and I looked at that and I said, well, how do you look at that and then have this confidence level that the disease is not present? Right. Um, because like, we can't say that they won't allow us to say that even at a hundred percent, they'll just say you, you haven't detected it yet. Okay. I got that. That, I, that makes sense just from a generalized, um, standpoint. But when you, when you have a, um, a, a model that you're using, how does that work? And he said, well, if I look at the population of 100 animals, I only have to test one to give me a, you know, upper 90% percentile confidence that the disease prevalence is less than 1%. And that was the goal. It's always less than 1%. Yeah, yeah. And when you take that model and you, you put it out into the hundreds of thousands, now your state's a lot bigger than ours. Um, in our state, you know, they harvest call it 330,000 uh, deer every year. And they have to only sample like it's yeah. it's it's a very small number. Sure, it's it's like uh, you know three or four thousand, and they have that comfort level. Now they've bumped up their surveillance, and and good on them. Um, mm -hmm. I think there are you know if I look at and I'm not a wildlife biologist, I have no technical expertise in any of this stuff. I'm just a farmer, but man, I've I've looked at the CWD stuff, and I. I say to myself, um, you know, we could be, we could be doing our, our monitoring and surveillance in a, a much more uh, tactical way, as opposed to finding, you know, call it a, a, an epicenter and doing heavy surveillance around that epicenter for five years, hmm. like find your epicenter, get your prevalence ratio in a certain space and then focus all your testing around the outside and then do your, your depopulations or your calling events or whatever you call them around yeah. that outside, because you're trying to, you're trying to limit the exposure. Right. And, yeah. and I feel like the wildlife divisions are trying to buy time, right? They're just trying to buy time till they yeah. have this tool. Well, yeah. you know, I get to participate in all sorts of different governmental conversations about funding initiatives and research and things like that. And the new thing is, hunter harvest test kits and i'm just like wow. we're back on the diagnostic tool thing are we yeah wow. so i look at your comments on genetics and i find that um i find that very hopeful and and really interesting so when yeah. you look at that um specifically in the the state of texas and you say okay we have the ability to do what we're really good at uh within these these deer breeding facilities and that's to create new deer uh excuse me, we have some tools that provide us information that we didn't have before that get us further down that road. If you, if you said today, like, um, using the, the, uh, uh, genomic estimated breeding values that are available for chronic waste and disease susceptibility and, um, our, our codon markers for the PRMP gene, uh, which is the, for those listening, the CWD gene, right? Um, and you said we could get in 10 years to a certain point. How long do you think it would take to, to influence the genetics of 
I don't know. You guys have like four million deer in your state or something like that. Five, yeah. Five. Yeah. What is? Yeah. What do you think that looks like? And I, you know, like we're just talking. I'm not asking for yeah. stuff, but like how? It doesn't take too too long for those genetics to start working themselves out there, does it? It doesn't. And I think coupled with a, a harvest plan like you're talking, mm. that would probably. I think you could fast line that. I, and I don't know. I haven't really sat down and put a model or you know thought into yeah. a model, but. Uh, I think that coupled with a, I think that's the only solution. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how else you beat the, the disease. And it, it's obviously what worked with scrapies and sheep. And it's for the listeners, that's the, the very same disease, just some sheep right. in a layman's way of saying it. And um, it, it's, it's worked. And, it, and they, even in Colorado, the bighorn sheep population, um, by utilizing genetic resistant animals, to scrape these, they were able to reestablish some of those areas, you know, mm -hmm. and so it's, it's been proven in my mind. Um, I just don't know of a, another route other than breeding in genetic resistance. And, and it, uh, it kind of, it, it kind of surprises me that uh, the state agencies and, and even on a national level that they don't dedicate more time to, to the solution you know i mean it it seems like monitoring 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 and i get that you know you want to know where your hot zones are you want to reduce spread but the spread's there i mean it's just like i said alabama hit a positive you know Louisiana hit a positive. i mean it's here um and i feel like uh, that most efforts need to be dedicated towards solutions you yeah. know and how what that looks like um the um so you, 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 uh, when I say you guys, I mean, I mean, folks in Texas, you, you've, you, you have a quite a bit different model, uh, from a hunting standpoint, uh, with the advent of the high fence ranch. Right. So we, we have those, like, again, I'm in the Northeast, like it's just very, there's, I'll give you a statistic that'll, that'll, that you'll like. So where I live, if you drive anywhere within 12 hours of me, there's over 70 million people. No. Okay. Yeah. So like I live in the country, like I got mountains, I don't have neighbors, like everything's yeah. good for me. Yeah. I can drive into town, takes me a half hour. I'm right. good. That. All right. But that's a lot of people. Sure. So there's not big tracts of land, you know, everything's a lot smaller. Yeah. Um, and it's just, you know, like, heck, they signed the declaration of independence back in the 1700s. Like, three hours from my house right yeah. Yeah. so there's a lot of history that's built up physically built up we don't see that so much in texas so somebody somewhere decided to take two cattle fences stack them on top of each other create the high fence yeah. boom wildlife management right okay yeah. so you guys have been able to stock these 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 ranches and previously i think you could stock low, low fence ranches. Is that correct? Is that gone? Okay. Oh, um, yeah, go ahead. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so everything, so you can only release white tailed deer onto from breeding facilities onto properties that are surrounded in a game proof fence. Uh, and they have to be, they have to have an antemortem negative test. Okay. So every deer that's released has an antemortem negative test. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, so that the idea, like, again, previously to the, to the, um, emergency rules, like the, the mindset was, is that like, it's, 
it's okay. We can release deer. We can supplement populations. We can improve these ranches, fence or not, right? And there might have been some restrictions uh, for for release sites and you know uh, monitoring these things. But like generally speaking, that was an accepted practice, right? So like mm. that is like so taboo where we are, right? Mm. But then I come back to this this idea that um, that we know now that CWD is uh, a, a genetic it, it has a genetic component. It's highly heritable, which mm. just means that the offspring inherit, whether that be high susceptibility or low susceptibility to the, to the disease. And I say, well, it seems pretty basic to me. Like we can make really good deer that have low susceptibility and stock mm. those. Right. Yes. So do you think, do you think maybe long-term, you know, Texas will be ahead of the game? If, if you guys can advocate this idea, obviously the science is going to in my eyes, I think it's going to prove itself out. It already is, um, yeah, but that data is going to grow. And yeah. do you think you guys will be ahead of the game, even with your large population in the state? Yeah, yeah, I do. I hope to. Yeah, you know, it. Um, I really don't know. It's interesting. It'll be interesting to see where the the industry moves. I think personally, I think yes. I think that uh, that we will be ahead of the game, obviously, because. Uh, the, the folks that are breeding for resistance, you know, like you said, as if it proves out scientifically, uh, which I, I feel the same way you do. I feel like we're, there's already quite a bit of proof and I think it will only get better. And I think that, um, I think it's so important. Like I said, I think it's the only solution. And I don't know. I wish I, I, I wish there, I just don't know enough, you know? And, and so um, I think that, being able to use white-tailed deer that have been bred for CWD resistance um, will end up helping in the long term. I think that they will definitely end up helping some of the native populations that are low fence, uh, you know, and, and across the state. I do. Uh, I'll tell you something that it may, I don't know if you've ever heard of this program down here, but they have, the the state has a program called Share, Share, uh, Share Locker Program. And it is a program that if you catch a bass over a certain size, largemouth bass over a certain size, and I believe it's 13 pounds or something, they uh, they come, grab the fish, they give you a replica and whatever, uh, and they take this fish to a brood a breeding facility, mm. a fisheries hatchery, and they breed uh, these fish, and then they stock the public lakes back with the the fish yeah. that came out of these trophy females, you know, and, and so um, I, I thought you might find that interesting, but that, you know, it's the exact same concept just in the fisheries world in the state. They, they commit it. I mean, they're happy with it, you know, and it's done well. I mean, it, the amount of, uh, of trophy largemouth bass production has, has risen since they've started that program. And so I, I, you know, portions of the state programs, they understand that I feel like, and it would be the same way with, releasing deer for cwd resistance in my mm -hmm. opinion it's, it's another trait and so so we have not exactly that but like we the the largest trout hatchery in pennsylvania is owned by our dnr or we call it a game commission our wildlife agency um they raise over a million fish a year no. and they stock those all over the state yeah it's a lot yeah. of fish right That's a lot of fish. we also we also have um hundreds of thousands of pheasants that are raised and stocked whether that no. be private or um you know public through wildlife 
Yeah. And I had mentioned, I, I was very fortunate to be invited to testify for a, a, a joint hearing in the, in the uh, Senate on the game and fisheries and our, our agriculture department. And I, I made, I made that exact point. I said, you know, uh, we have, we have these, what most consider very successful state run programs for other species, wildlife species that have um, hundred dollars backing them and, and, you know, some sort of uh, outdoor enjoyment of, of hunting through these species and whether that, or, or, or fishing as well through trout and pheasant. Right. It's not too far of a step to say, Hey, we can add deer. And, and I always yeah. wonder like, why have, why have there not been like dedicated herds established just like what we do privately by these wildlife agencies at a minimum for study? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like, so like Texas A&M has a program, correct? That's right. Okay. So they have deer pens, right? Pennsylvania has one as well. It's I, I, at this point between maybe Michigan and Mississippi, it's one of the oldest in the country. Um, and like there's valid research that comes out of there. Now it's university run, but like it's still part of that overall state entity. And I yeah. wonder why there's not an I'm going to, all you Texas guys don't hate on me. Okay. I don't want the emails. You can do something over at uh, Sam Houston. You could do something at Texas tech. You can do like, and like you could distribute this throughout the state and have these, um, you know, maybe eco specific uh, strategic areas and then start, you know, doing projects that make a difference to those environmental uh, yeah. areas and ecosystems. And I, I think CWD is a, a great opportunity for something yeah. like that. And then supplement it with the, the, the private industry, right? Like that yeah. just makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, it does to me as well. I think that that's where, you know, it's the point working towards solutions, you know, that would, to me, that would uh, be a smart move on the, on the government end of things is to, is to maybe establish some of those programs. If, to utilize them for stocking and if you know if cwd is that large of a bear you know i i, I don't quite understand why they're not more, more proactive in that region even if it's just for a research basis like yeah. you said it, not necessarily growing deer to release right now but even on a research level it seems like um with the amount of effort and heartache and money that goes towards cwd control that would make much more sense to me yeah. you know developing these I, I feel like we have the uh, the brain power in this yeah. country. There's 30, 30 odd million white-tailed deer. It's the I, I think, and I'm I, of course I don't know this, but like I I have a feeling that it is the most sought-after big game species in the world, right? Like people come from all over the world to hunt white-tailed deer. We're just mm-hmm. super fortunate to live here. Yes, and and you would think that like we could drum up enough of that brain power into one place and and start working on again to your point real solutions on this i think we're on the cusp right and, I do and hopefully too. yeah hopefully uh we start i think we start to see you know even if it's one person at a time the public education pressure put on uh government generally um to to start doing these things and and it, or at least have meaningful conversations about them i think that's really important and, and i'm hopeful for that 
stated earlier how important it is to me it's as important as any other um piece of the puzzle you know it's even legislative any of that i think the public but as far as the deer breeding industry goes i think public education is so very important you know yeah. i really i think that i think majority of the uh hesitation to to this industry uh is just due to lack of knowledge is really how i feel um, so I'm going to shift off of CWD. I'm not going to say any more about, I'm going to try not to say any more about any, um, state agencies, right? Uh, disease, <laughs> disease, anything like that. Um, breeding season is around the corner. Right. Tell me what you're excited about. And, um, as most deer breeders, you know, there's, uh, it's the really good, good time. It's the, you know, you start making these uh, breeding plans and of course they'll change 100 times between now and the <laughs> time you actually get the AI day, but, or whatever your date is, like yep. or whatever, you know, and, uh, and so the genetics end is uh, to me the, the most fun portion. Uh, and so I, I am really excited every time you, know, you start matching these breedings up and what you think they're going to do. And then you bring in, uh, I have to say CWD again, but you bring in this other <laughs> aspect, you know, <laughs> to the point, to the deal, it makes it even that more challenging, you know? And so uh, I love it. I, I, I think that's great. And I'm excited to, to bring in some S marker deer or whatever markers you're going after, you know, and, and GBV animals. And I'm excited. Uh, you know, we have some female lines that we really have worked hard at putting together and, um, and crossing some of those outer line and back up, but putting all that together. It's just, uh, to me, that's almost like Christmas, you know? Yeah, I was, uh, we had a, <laughs> all right, I'm going to talk about it again. Uh, <laughs> we yeah. had a, um, we have a proposed urine ban in our state um, oh. by our, our PGC and obviously due to, to chronic wasting disease and they, they feel it's going to spread. So we had a legislative uh, tour yesterday at one of the largest, certainly the largest urine a collection facility in Pennsylvania and one of the largest in the country. It's a, it's a very beautiful place. And I was, I was discussing um, kind of my, my evolution into why I do what I do. And um, you know, obviously it started with, with hunting at a, you know, fairly young age. Uh, and I, I was just saying to the guy like, and he, the, this was a, a legislator and he's, he's a big outdoorsman and hunter and, you know, he lives for that too. And I said, I, I, I needed more. It wasn't the, the window that was given to me for hunting was not enough because I was yeah. doing all the, you know, the year round scouting and I was spending so much time. I just needed it. I needed it more. And I, I needed it in, in closer contact to me. Yeah. And then I discovered, um, the breeding aspect of it and, and looking at all the things that just you know, it's for me, it's like a, a, a click in my brain, a click in my brain, a click in my brain. That's looking at pedigree and production and pictures. And like, it's this magic soup that spins around all the time. Mm -hmm. And then you add new stuff in and you're like, what's that going to be? What's that going to be? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, um, it's addicting in a good way. It's the, it's mm -hmm. the, what's the best way to describe it? It's the cleanest, it's the cleanest addiction that you can have. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, some people like yeah. to drink a bunch and, and, and yeah. do recreational things that may not be good for you. Uh, this yeah. isn't one of those. This is, right. 
Yeah. Probably one of the best things in life that I've experienced, you know, yeah. outside of my, my kids and my family. Right. Right. And yeah. It's pretty amazing. So I, um, I can appreciate your, your zest and zeal for, for yeah. that particular aspect of it. And I, I think it doesn't get old, you know, it, no, it old. yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I, it's so funny. You mentioned changing it a hundred times and I just picture somebody standing there with their clipboard <laughs> like this over yeah. top of the vet as they're getting ready to AI. Like, no, I don't want yeah. to do that one. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. We're changing now. Yeah. 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 I've been that guy. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Many times. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll leave that. I'm going to leave this on a, on a, on a high note there. Um, Chris, I really appreciate you coming on and, yeah, and talking with me and um, hopefully we'll be able to do this again in the, in the future. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Thank I appreciate you. your time, buddy. Yeah. Thank you. And with yeah. that, ladies and gentlemen, stay tuned for another episode of North American Deer Talk.